0: This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. and Abel, here with Dr. Bill Nance. Hello. And today we're going to talk to Dr. John Kuhn.
1: Hello, how are you?
0: About uh, one of the most important theorists of, uh, let's let's say, maritime affairs, uh, Alfred Mahan. So let's kind of start at the end and give us a very brief couple sentence explanation for why Alfred Mahan is so important to maritime affairs, and then we'll get into detail.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, Mahan is important. Uh, uh, Alfred, Alfred Thayer Mahan is important because he, he came to prominence at a time uh, when the United States was emerging as a, uh, as a, a great power on the world stage um, with a message uh, for other great powers on the world stage that had to do with sea power and maritime affairs and maritime policy. So he was very, very influential in the policy world, uh, uh, probably more influential than he was, to be honest, in the actual military and naval field in terms, of, uh, in terms of ship design and everything like that, which you might normally think that he would be more influential in. Um, so his, he cast a very, very long shadow over, over many uh, of the emerging modern navies of the late 19th century, but especially the early 20th century. And uh, there's even a book that, that's entirely about his influence on the Japanese Navy by the foremost uh, scholar of the Japanese Navy, uh, Sadao Asada, called From Mahan to Pearl Harbor. <laughs> so uh, that, in a nutshell, is why Mahan is important.
0: Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, who is he? Where does he come from? What's his background?
1: So Mahan uh, came from uh, an East Coast family, uh, uh, what we would call the middle class, but kind of a special component of it that was not sort of common in America of the early 19th century. Uh, His father was Dennis Hart Mahan. Dennis Hart Mahan was a protege of one of the great military reformers in early America, uh, Sylvanus Thayer, who is probably better identified as the father of West Point, the United States Military Academy, uh, than all of many other fathers of the United States Military Academy that have been identified, including Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. But Mahan was one of his protégés uh, and, uh, and and Dennis Hart Mahan uh, uh, became, uh, graduated first in his class from West Point and became a professor of engineering at West Point, but he also taught us course in strategy at West Point uh, that leveraged military history so it was sort of one of the first first people to really practice a more broad approach to professional military ed- education in American history and and even to some sense uh, on the global stage uh, the American program at West Point had, had many features that were actually superior to even some of the foremost European powers. The, the only power that probably had a, had a better system than perhaps the United States was, was Germany. Um, the French, you could say, maybe better because so much of what they used. But Mahan, Dennis Hart Mahan, Mahan's dad, uh, was a towering figure at West Point. There's a building named after him, although they pronounce it Mahan, not Mahan. And, and he, was, uh, he wasn't formally the dean, but informally he was treated like a dean. Mm-hmm. And so Mahan was born into a very prominent family at West Point. Uh, uh, and in that sense, uh, he was part of that, that elite, the emerging elite, uh, security elite in the United States of the 19th century. Uh, so it's it's rather fascinating that the son would sort of do for the navy what the father had done for the army, although at the next level up.
2: So do we know why uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan chose to you know go to the dark side and you know become navy as opposed to you know stay with, stay with the army? Well, yeah, as I say, as a West Point
1: graduate. Yeah, the so again, you you can imagine him growing up at 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 West Point, which was where he spent his childhood and all of his formative years as an adolescent was on the Hudson at West Point, in that in that really beautiful location, um, it would 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 drench him in army in sort of the culture of the time that was associated with West Point, and what what sort of passed for the institutional culture of the army. Because uh, that's where all the officers came from, right. uh, but the Mahans were very religious. They were they were uh, uh, what we tend to call now high church uh, Anglican, uh, uh, although uh, not really Episcopalian. But they were uh, Mahan's uncle uh, was a churchman. Uh, uh, I think he was a bishop in a church in New York, if I remember correctly, in New York City, in Manhattan.
0: So he's uh, kind of what the English might call gentry.
1: Right, he's gentry. So you know, there's some there's some parallels here with with Nelson. Uh, Nelson's father was a was a rector, was a parson, and Mahan's Mahan's uncle uh, was also. Uh, what's fascinating here is that that Milo Mahan, who was his uncle, actually was had more more uh, influence over the young Mahan than, than his father did. Mm-hmm. And so Mahan wanted to follow his uncle into the church. And so instead of going to West Point, which was a, something of a disappointment to his father, although we're not really sure that's the case because the evidence is kind of sketchy on that, um, uh, I, I think Dennis Hart Mahan was probably glad that, that, that Mahan wanted to, be, to go into, into, uh, into the church and, and be a parson and be a theologian. And that was his bent, was to be a theologian. Um, and uh, in uh, Suzanne Giesler's uh, very wonderful uh, religious biography of Mahan, God and Sea Power, Mahan goes to Columbia to, to study theology. Now this is a this is a young boy who's been educated used tutors at West Point so he's he's conversant sort of in all the basics that a 19th century gentry would have with things like French Latin science mathematics Um, and so he's studying at Columbia and he's 16 years old and he decides he does not want to be in the church Um, and. we never really quite sure why he chose the navy whether it was adolescent rebellion but he asked his father if he could get an appointment to the brand new just years old had only been been created in just in the last decade the us naval academy and so his father reluctantly contacted his friend the secretary for war jefferson davis and Davis used his influence to get Mahan an appointment to the Navy. This is the 1840s. Yes, 1840s. And so Mahan is uh, Mahan uh, uh, goes to uh, Annapolis. Mahan Mahan was very very he was a he was something of a polymath, and so he had already obtained sort of the entry requirements for Annapolis because he wanted to know if he had to take any tests to enter Annapolis. And he found in the he found in the establishment uh, structure for Annapolis that uh, that you could enter at whatever level you could test out at. So instead of taking the entrance exam, he took the closing examinations for plebe year. He tested out of his plebe year at West Point, and so he entered or West Point Annapolis, and so he entered Annapolis as what uh, we would call a yearling, a sophomore. Uh, he's the only person to ever do that. Um, and after he did it, the Navy changed the regulation. Um, <laughs> Uh, but he, it kept him uh, pretty much in the same age group. Uh, uh, there's several biographies of Mahan. The worst of them by uh, a guy named Seeger uh, said that Mahan was not well-liked and that he ratted out his fellow his fellow, uh, fellow midshipmen and everything. This is all nonsense. Mahan was very well-liked. He, he did very, very well. He graduated second in his class which was a disappointment to him because he wanted to graduate first in his class like his father had right. from West Point. So you, you can already see that this is a very ambitious, uh, very high goal-setting family that Mahan has come from.
0: So the people who are at the Naval Academy at this point, uh, are they like the kind of stereotypical 19th century officer school People, are they from the patrician class, are they the, the sons of wealth, or are they kind of the, the bourgeoisie gentry like him?
1: Well, the, again, the, uh, the, the folks that are at Annapolis at that time are not necessarily the guys who are the sons of the people running the Navy. So the, the Navy had gone through a period of reform uh, in the first half of the 19th century, Because of what had happened in the War of 1812, a Navy reform movement uh, emerged and, and the Navy bureau system was created. And this was sort of the beginnings of a nascent military naval industrial complex with the Navy bureaus. And they, they changed. The bureaus changed, but essentially there was a Bureau of Navigation that did admin, Bureau of Docks and Yards, Bureau of Equipment, Bureau of Engineering, which was very, very new because of the steam engine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, so there was already this connection with the corporate world that the Navy had in, in a much stronger fashion than the, uh, than the Army did with West Point. And so, sort of, instead of sort of getting the gentry from the old families, uh, from the south or from or from the east coast, the Navy almost exclusively was getting its new young ship, young midshipmen from uh, commercial classes. Um, and uh, but it was a mix. the The Navy culture at this time was a mix. It was a hybrid mix of sort of the new guys who were going through this new school that many of the more senior naval officers didn't think much of. They thought the only place to learn them about uh, handling fleets and handling ships was at sea.
0: Which makes sense on sailing ships, but less so for newer ships.
1: Less so for the newer. So Mahan basically is joining the Navy during a period of pretty profound cultural transformation, but it hasn't taken place yet. So he's not necessarily being mentored or as a protege of the sort of fighting admirals that we're going to see that win the Civil War, the right. David Farraguts, the David, uh, the 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 Dixon Porters. Uh, uh, although there are those uh, modernist elements that are in the Navy, uh, Gus, Gus Fox, John Dahlgren, guys right. like that. And it's and it's after the Civil War that the Navy becomes falls into the hands of the reformers. And Mahan is considered to be sort of the junior, a junior member of the first generation of post Civil War naval reformers, primarily David Dixon Porter, Daniel Amen, and uh, uh, and and uh, a guy named Luce, uh, a Commodore uh, Luce.
2: So, on that, uh, so we've got, uh, I'm trying to think, Ensign. Uh, ensign Mahan. Mahan comes out. Does he, is he already kind of exhibiting kind of the behavior and the characteristics that's going to later distinguish him as one of the greatest naval thinkers? In other words, is he, as people are already sitting at him going, hey, that's a good, that's a good thinker. Is he, who is he, who's mentoring him? Where does he fall into these categories or is he just being an ensign? Uh, he, he's
1: initially, he's an ensign, but he's an ensign who goes to war almost immediately. And he ends up in the Gulf Blockading Squadron. Now he doesn't spend the whole war in the Gulf Blockading Squadron. Actually, uh, he leaves the Gulf Blockading Squadron and does a cruise to Japan, uh, which is fascinating. Where he just, where he, and he for the rest of his life he'll sort of pass himself off because of his cruise and his visit to Japan as sort of a Japan expert, a Japan feo, as we might say, an expert yeah. on Japanese culture and everything and Sadao Asada goes into this in his book but the short answer to your question is no he's just another naval officer it's not until after the war that people begin to recognize some of his talents um, uh, he follows the standard what we call fleet ladder he and he starts commanding ships um, and starts to climb the ladder of command um, Part of the ladder of command is to go to the Naval Academy and be a professor at the Le- Naval Academy. Now, prior to the war, this was not considered career-enhancing, but after the war, it is. So he actually goes and it becomes a professor of naval gunnery at the at the Naval Academy, and it's there that he falls in with these naval reformers, uh, captains. Uh, Uh, Commodores and even a couple retired admirals like Porter and particularly Rear Admiral Daniel Amen. Um, It's at this time that Little Brown commissions three histories to be written of the Civil War and so the first official History of the Civil War is written at this time. In order to write this history of the Civil War, the Navy Department puts together something called the ORN, which is the Operational Records of the Naval Operations of the Civil War. So the ORN, which Civil War historians know about, is actually created in order for Mahan, Daniel Amen, and then a guy named James T. Soley. Who's a retired naval officer, but who later becomes assistant secretary of the navy to write uh, the the history of the war? Mahan does the blockade in the south. Uh, Sully does the blockade on the east coast, and then Amain does the uh, river operations. And so those three monographs, uh, published by uh, published published by not by Little Brown, I'm sorry, but by Scribners, are the first official history of naval operations in this. Civil War. And now people are beginning to go, oh, this guy can write. Mm-hmm. So he's recognized during this time frame. It's also this time frame that the Naval Institute is created. Now, Mahan is not the guy who comes up with the idea for the U.S. Naval Institute. But, but these naval officers decide to create essentially a private organization that's run by active duty naval officers that will be a professional forum and produce a professional journal of naval affairs. And they will meet and critique each other's articles at Annapolis. And Mahan gets involved in this. And he comes in, he's like United States Naval Institute member number 17. All right. Mm-hmm. And then in the first prize essay, Mahan does not win the prize essay, but he wins third prize for his, his essay on naval education. So he's becoming to come into prominence as something of a younger naval intellectual. Mm-hmm. And so he's starting to get some notice between the more senior members of the naval reform movement, the progressives.
0: So there's a story that you sometimes read about Mahan, and, and I, there's variations of it. But essentially the argument is that he was the worst captain in naval history. That he wrecks the only ships he commanded and that he was better suited to write on land than command ships. Is there any truth to
1: that? That comes from Seeger's biography. Um, so to understand why Seeger wrote this biography filled with essentially lies, you have and Suzanne Geisler's book God and God and Sea Power kind of completely undoes most of, So this is one of the myths that comes out of Seeger's book. Mm-hmm. Mahan would never have been given subsequent commands if he'd been such a bad seaman. All right, mm-hmm. He was actually a pretty good seaman. He's given command of one of the few steam sloops left in the Navy after the Civil War. Uh, the fastest steam sloop that in the U.S. Navy, still a rather decrepit ship. So the Navy's best ship is a decrepit ship. Mahan actually commands this, this ship. Um, And he will command a flagship for a Commodore who hates him. And it's that Commodore who will actually write a lot of the things about Mahan Mm. that Seeger will leverage.
0: Kind of like the story of the guy who hated Edgar Allan Poe who made up all the stories about him. Right,
1: and that's what happens with Seeger. There's two prior biographies to this that are very fair and that... That, that are actually better, although Suzanne Giesler's more recent biography, even though it sort of focuses on Mahan's spiritual life. And that's a big key to why Seeger hated Mahan. Seeger was an avowed uh, early 20th century atheist intellectual. And when he discovered that Mahan was what we would call today a born-again high church Christian, Mm-hmm. he he had problems so he's writing a biography of a guy who believes in god at the same time he doesn't believe in god and so he sort of he sort of decides that that mahan is not a serious person he can't be a serious seaman he can't be a serious anything mm-hmm. and so uh, the other unfortunate thing is seeger's the one who organizes all mahan's papers mm-hmm. and so this further perverts the record of history. I, I've always wondered, what did Seeger get rid of mm-hmm. that we don't know of in yeah. Mahan's papers? I, I mean, nobody's ever written about this. Maybe B.J. Armstrong at the Naval Academy could write about it, or, or or, Nick Lambert at Rutgers could write about it. These are two of the guys that are kind of doing some of the best work on Mahan these days after Suzanne Geisler. And... Um, uh, we'll never know, but I, I, but just the fact that a guy who hated Mahan so, so, so viscerally would be the one who organized his papers right. makes you wonder. And these are published in three volumes, Mahan's Correspondence. Uh, and uh, so that's where this myth about Mahan being—Mahan, I think the, the worst you could say of Mahan is that he was an indifferent seaman. In other words, he didn't—it it wasn't his life. to to just be at sea. And as he got older, he suffered from the same thing that I suffered from as I got older, which is you get tired of going to sea. You do get tired of being on a prison ship for nine, 10. And in Mahan's day, these were long, long cruises. And there were long cruises on ships without air conditioning, ships without fresh water, ships without fresh vegetables. They used coal. They were stinky. They were smelly. They were really horrible places to live. A lot
0: of disease. Uh,
1: A lot of disease. A lot of problems. And so, by so when Mahan said, says, writes in his journal that he had, or in a letter to to Luce, to Commodore Luce, that he'd forgotten what a what a, what a what a miserable place a ship is to be on, Seeger will use that to say, see, he hated life at sea. Yeah. Well, I suspect the younger Mahan, sailing to Japan as an ensign or a lieutenant junior grade, enjoyed being at sea. He right. liked the adventure. He wasn't married yet. He had, didn't have a kids. He didn't have responsibilities ashore. The other thing is, Mahan was always worried about money. He, you know, he didn't inherit a lot of money. His father might have been a fairly well-known guy and provided for the family, but Mahan didn't come into some big inheritance, and it, he wasn't like the sea dogs of old, where he had all this prize money to fall back on. And so, once Mahan learned uh, learned that he could start to make money with with the pen, he he would he would write for the money. And uh, and, and Sir Julian Corbett, who was independently wealthy. Uh, had always kind of cast dispersions on Mahan that, you know, Mahan has to write. I don't have to write. I write because I want to. Whereas, even though Mahan and Corbett maintain a very cordial relationship, and Andrew Lambert talks about that in his wonderful biography of Sir Julian Corbett, but Corbett didn't have to earn money by writing. Mahan actually did. The Navy pension that he got uh, when he retired from the Navy was rather pitiful. A captain's pension was not enough to support a family living in a brownstone in Manhattan. Mm -hmm.
2: So you talked about, uh, so uh, Ensign Mahan comes uh, out of the Naval Academy, fairly quickly thrust into uh, the Civil War, has a trip out to Japan. So let's talk about the United States Navy, 1865, out uh, a couple decades. Let's call it 1900. What does the uh, United States Navy look like in the period after the Civil War to 1900?
1: So what happens to the United States Navy at the end of the Civil War is precisely what happens to the United States Navy at the end of World War II. There's nobody to fight. No. The, the British, the the British, the British, Royal Navy, uh, the Americans in the British Empire have a modus vivandi, which is you protect our trade and we won't build a big Navy. Uh, But prior to the end of the Civil War, the United States had the second or third largest navy in the world, and that includes seagoing vessels. So so, yeah, it was mostly coastal vessels and and gunboats, but the United States Navy, because of the blockading squadrons, which had to be seagoing vessels, was, was as big as the British and the French Navy, which were the two largest navies at the time, especially after the Crimean War when the Russians were forced to downsize. So, so that Navy goes down to less than 40 ships. And uh, you would think that it would, it would use technology, but it doesn't. It, the, the Navy, the Navy is, still has, has ships that don't even have steam power uh, in this period. But this is when the progressives take over the Navy. Uh, A wonderful book by Scott Mobley called uh, Progressives in Navy Blue says that basically the Navy progressive reformers essentially take control of the Navy in the 1870s and the 1880s, and they're the ones responsible for sort of pushing the agenda to create a modern Navy. Now, there's not a lot of support for this in Congress. Right. So,
0: this is the era of small budgets. Congress is running the country rather than the president. Right. So I you imagine d- there's a sentiment: why do this?
1: You don't need ships to realize manifest destiny on you the do. North American continent. But it, it is fascinating. You know the timing here is, you know, as Mahan would say, providential. They with with the end of the the with the manifest destiny for the North American continent complete, um, as. Uh, Somebody once said, you know what Americans do uh, with a frontier, right? So the Americans get to the West Coast, and the new frontier is the Pacific. Mm-hmm. The new frontier is the Pacific. It's not the Atlantic, because the, the Royal Navy owns the, the, the Atlantic is a, is a British lake. But the, but the Pacific is, is, uh, is open territory, is a, is a frontier. And Mahan's book, The Influence of Sea Power, comes out in 1890, the same year of Frederick Jackson's famous Essay about the end of the American frontier uh, in 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 the continental United States. The the navy and so the navy all of a sudden begins to appear in the American consciousness as a way to extend. So now you don't need the cavalry to protect the frontier. You need the navy to expand and protect the frontier. Mm-hmm. And so this is what emerges. And 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 Mahan's book is essentially saying, you know, we need a navy not only to protect our trade overseas, but to protect ourselves from these other rapacious imperial powers out there, like the Germans, Mm -hmm. or or the Germans, (laughs) or the Germans. A lot of Americans think the United States that that what's really impelling the United States to create a navy is is the decline of the British Navy. It's not so much the decline of the British Navy, it's the expansion of the European colonial powers overseas uh, and and the beginning of the Americans to butt up against these other imperial powers, including the Empire of Japan. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Hawaii in 1895, the Naniwa incident, where the Japanese show up in Hawaii with a cruiser with a guy named Kato Kanji on board as a junior officer, and the Americans have already sort sort of absorbed Hawaii at that point. So but 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 the real concern is the Germans. We The reason we take the Philippines in the Spanish-American War is not because we want a culling colony. It's because we don't want the Germans to have a culling colony in the Philippines. Mm-hmm.
2: So let's take this uh, a little bit farther forward. So uh, we have Teddy Roosevelt and the Great White Fleet right around the turn of the 20th century. And But to design a ship and to build a ship takes a significant amount of time. So how uh, so how much has Mahan and his uh, and his group of folks that are uh, kind of pushing this idea? How much impact do they have on T. R. Roosevelt and building the Great White Fleet? Is it just a good idea, or are they actually helping influence what kind of ships we design and the technologies we advance?
1: Well, what we have to think about here is is part of this 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 naval intellectual revolution, the creation by Luce of the Naval War College and then Mahan being that second president of the Naval War College who negotiates the rocky terrain that makes it a permanent institution. And the Navy creates the Naval War College in order to hide a general staff planning function inside the War College. That's why it's created. Everybody knows that. Mahan knows that. Luce knows that. Tasker Bliss, who's on the faculty of the Naval War College, knows that. Henry Clay Taylor. But the the piece here with the Great White Fleet and the emergence of the naval industrial congressional complex has to do with the, the intellectual component, which is not just Mahan, but also has to do with Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt is a bona fide naval historian. He's actually a better, more professional historian than Mahan is. Mahan's Mahan's book is kind of a model. The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. Luce wanted the Influence of Sea Power Upon History to be a book where Mahan writes all this history and then at the end says, Jomini's principles are valid for warfare at sea. The problem is he had Mahan write it. And so when Mahan presents that work to the publishers, the publishers ask him, well, can't you tie all this together with some general principles? And instead of giving them Jomini's principles, he gives them the six principal conditions of sea power, which is a treatise on geopolitics and political economy using a maritime global trading network, which just stuns everybody, including the young Theodore Roosevelt, who goes, oh, this is, this is what Mahan is doing. And and so so it's not just Mahan's book; it's Roosevelt's book on the War of 1812, which which really looks at the American guerilla course against the British economy and a raiding trading routes and British, the impact of the Royal Navy on American trade, um, and and then it's Mahan's second book, The Influence of Sea Power on the French Revolution and Empire, and so it's these three books are really all of a piece that sort of propagate this idea that if the United States is going to be a maritime global trading empire, it needs a Navy to protect that. We can't count on the Royal Navy to do that. Um, And so they finally start to get congressional buy-in to do this. So Mahan doesn't build the Great White Fleet. Roosevelt doesn't build the Great White Fleet. Congress pays for the Great White Fleet. And, 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 and the richest components of America are its seaboard states at this time. They actually have more money than the rest of America combined. And so it's a sort of this elegant sort of political dynamic. Now, you've got to remember that the Americans are also building what will become the second largest merchant fleet in the world. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so think about it today. In 1903, the United States is like the People's Republic of China was in 2003
0: mm-hmm.
1: That's the, the, in comparison to Great Britain.
0: Big, but still a land power.
1: St- big, still a land power, but building this gigantic merchant fleet and suddenly realizing that it probably needs a, ma- a navy of commensurate size to do that. Now, there's still a lot of pushback. There's, that, those, there's those components of American um, of American city on a hill. We call it isolationism, but I prefer to think of it as, you know, here we are you know, behind our oceanic boats, copy us, right? Mm-hmm. So that's not really isolationist when you think about it. So there's still components of that which are saying, no, well, we, just, we just need to defend. The problem is they're having a hard time saying that we just need to defend America and that's why we only need a small Navy when, in point of fact, American shipping, American commerce, American trade goods, that's America, too.
2: Mm-hmm. And Mahan's writing as a retired officer. And
1: now he's writing as a retired officer. He actually doesn't write much about warfare. He's writing mostly about geopolitical things like building railroads from you know Berlin to Baghdad and stuff mm-hmm. like that. He's writing about the future of Asia. What are we going to do with all these millions in China when China becomes a modern power? So Mahan is actually kind of way ahead of everybody else in terms of geopolitics. He's not really a sea power theorist uh, in terms of warfare. He is a geopolitical theorist in terms of maritime political economy.
0: So let's talk about kind of the the background um, ideologies of this period. Once he leaves the Navy and starts becoming a professional writer... There's a lot kind of swirling around the U.S. and the world, Um, and I think we see some of these in Mahan. So a couple of the big ones are you mentioned progressivism, right? But also social Darwinism. So so if you could walk us through a little bit of kind of the intellectual climate that Mahan is catering to and how that
1: influences. Yeah, so so you know one of the things Mahan is heavily involved in is the uh, is the emerging international rule set. So he's he's going to be a, a delegate to London in, in 1909 for for the, the conference on the uh, laws of cruiser warfare and also on international arbitration. So so um, so the intellectual environment is very fermented because you've got this emerging sort of international internationalism. Uh, and the idea that, it, that World War One will cement a, we need a United Nations or a League of Nations. So mm-hmm. Mahan is part of that. I mean, he he'd been he been, uh, he'd been a part of the arbitration that took place with Venezuela in 1902 uh, that Teddy Roosevelt had gotten. All right, and so so the intellectual environment is is there. I, Mahan was shocked by Darwinism. He really was. Um, Mahan is actually not a social Darwinist. Mahan is more of kind of a white man's burden sort of a guy. Remember, he's a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a piece of Mahan that's evangelical, all right? but And he regards the American way of doing business, and I chose those words deliberately, um, uh, as a model for the rest of the world. And so he doesn't see sort of the social competition between races, even though some of his early writing reflects this, as more or less kind of humanity all getting up to step to what he sees as sort of the correct human social structure.
0: So a kind of Hegelian progress.
1: Yeah, he is more Hegelian than he is Darwinian. He, Darwinism sort of clashes with his, his Christianity in terms of his worldview, all right? Mm-hmm. But his worldview is very much Anglo-centric Christian worldview. So, um, uh, but he's not a big fan of, you know, the way he thinks that you bring nobility uh, to uh, the rest of humanity is the British method. All right. And he sort of has this idealized view of how the British are doing this. He doesn't see how messy and criminal in some cases it, it is. Uh, Remember, Mahan fought in the Civil War. So, you know, in many senses, Mahan is out of step with the temper of the times Mm -hmm. in terms of racism as a component of social Darwinism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remember, his friend is Teddy Roosevelt. And who does Teddy Roosevelt have to dinner in the White House? Booker T. Washington, right? So so Mahan is actually in the progressive camp as it exists in that first decade of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So he's he's very much there and he's he he does believe in an internationalist approach mm-hmm. but he doesn't think the United States should ever give away its sovereignty when it comes to arbitration mm-hmm. although he does believe and this is paradoxical that the United States should be a component of arbitration mm-hmm. as in the Venezuelan crisis so it's so yeah there are paradoxes and contrasts here in his approach he recommends against the adop, adoption of arbitration in the world as it is in his day. But he also favors the creation of a consortium of international liberal states built around the United States and Great Britain.
0: Right. Which is not an, uh, unlike Woodrow Wilson to some extent. Or
1: or Winston Churchill to yeah. some extent.
0: So. You've mentioned a couple of his kind of tentpole works, the biggest one being The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. You also mentioned his other two-volume work on The Influence of Sea Power on the French Revolution and Empire. Um, so those are kind of his history works. What else did he write in addition to those two kind of magnum? Opuses? So
1: he he's very prolific magazine writer. Uh, he would do articles uh, on request for money. So somebody would say, we want you to write about this, and he'd write about it. This
0: is much like Mark Twain. Um,
1: um, Naval Institute wanted to publish all of his lectures. Um, but this was back when the Naval Institute was not paying for articles, and they still, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had one published. I have. They don't pay a lot. I call it pizza money when you get something published by them. But, but back then, the, the, the amount of money was not anything. He turned them down because he thought if he published all of his lectures in the Naval Institute, they would abolish the Naval War College. Why, why do you need a Naval War College? Just go read these articles by my hand in Naval Institute. But if for Atlantic Magazine, Forbes Magazine, uh, uh, the Royal United Services Institute, he would publish, and he became uh, what Hans Delbruck became to Germany. He became a policy wonk. He was very much the Hans Delbruck of the United States. All right. So in many ways, with Hans Delbruck, with his Berliner Otago book articles and stuff, uh, Mahan was performing the same function uh, in the in the anglo-centric world. And I say anglo-centric world because his his writing was very broadly viewed. He would also do books. Uh, uh, people wanted him to write books on things. But for the most part, Mah- Mahan kind of turns away from sea power and becomes a policy wonk.
2: Right, and on that note, so what is you know kind of the silly question? What is what are the policy positions that Mahan pushes that makes him so influential and makes him uh, remembered? Today? Well, and
0: even more broadly than that, you
2: mentioned his six. Well, principle. in his own
0: day, not our day. Right. Yeah. Most
1: of his policy stuff is no longer studied nowadays. Right. Mm-hmm. It, in, unless you go to like the Naval War College. All right. But 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 uh, and and they would take his articles and put them together in anthologies. So mm-hmm. retrospect and prospect, which is his his sort of at the advent of the twentieth century, looking back but also looking forward, has 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 the famous article the problem of Asia. Mm-hmm. Asia is expanding. China is emerging as a modern power. What are we, the world, going to do about
0: that? Right, in a zero sum game.
1: Yeah, in a zero and he sees it sort of that way, but he sees it. In a positive viewpoint, so Mahan is not a gloomy pessimist like uh, like Oswald Spengler is, who's writing at the same time, by the way. Okay, he is more of a positivist, and and of course this will all be dashed in 1914 with World War One, which I think contributes to Mahan's death and, and causes him depression. Never mind the fact that he's that he's he's gagged by uh, so some of this. He's so influential that an article that he writes before World War I breaks out is going to be published in Forbes or The Atlantic or one of these magazines on, on why the United States needs to prepare for the possibility of war mm-hmm. and getting tangled in the war in Europe. Um, and he supports supporting the British. He is actually threatened to be called back to active duty by the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, and court-martialed. Because of that article. And he has to withdraw the article. This is in 1914. Uh, even though he'd written the article before the war broke out. Mahan's a prophet. He's kind of a prophet who in his later years is often uh, uh, is often not paid much attention to by the people in power. You know, uh, essentially you get this new pharaoh, Woodrow Wilson. And the old pharaoh who supported Mahan and backed many of his ideas, Teddy Roosevelt, is gone. You know, he's off in right. South America trying to get himself killed on a camping trip, right? right, right. Um, so so the two are tied together. You you can't separate the, these two guys dying within five years of each other is no accident. Yeah. They're they're they they they're almost they almost create a separate personality between the two of them mm-hmm. that's and, and that's 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 an area for future research where somebody should write a book, you know, you've you've seen these books, you know, uh, 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 you know, Churchill and
0: Hitler. I, I, it's a parallel lives thing. It's parallel.
1: Yeah, and they and and it's more parallel than most because there's this rich, rich correspondence that links the two of them, yeah. right?
2: So, um, so Mahan's arguing big navies that will block that will fight a battle then blockade the enemy coast. Well,
1: no, he's writing yeah. about geopolitics. He's writing about big nations, big empires that will cooperate together in in. Uh, enforcing a rules-based system that will that will create wealth and prosperity for everybody.
0: Do you think this is a natural outgrowth of the idea of kind of admiralty courts and law, or is this something new?
1: No, no, he gets a lot of his ideas from that. But again, remember, most of these ideas are from the 18th century. Adam yeah. Smith, Immanuel Kant. Um, Colbert. And Colbert, yeah, the, and the French. And remember, Mahan's, Mahan is more intellectually, a lot of his really most important ideas come from the French. Like I just discovered one the other day that I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. It's in The Influence of Sea Power. He's quoting a French captain who actually wrote an entire treatise on naval tactics that's almost, if we look at it from our perspective today, it's like Jomini for the Sea. This is one reason Mahan never writes the Jomini for the Sea book. You know, and it says there, it's just in French. He he's it's yeah, it's already there. It's in French. Go read it. Go read it in the original. You'll get a lot from it. And 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 it's well known he wrote about it. A young Admiral Spruance read it in Mahan's work and then went and read it in the French and then used it to practice warfare in World War Two. So so the threads here of Mahan's influence, he's not monocausal though. Again, he sees himself as part of a tide of history that's moving this way towards an international liberal system that will be dominated by liberal corporatist ideals. Which is not
0: uncommon for the intelligentsia of the late 19th and early 20th century. Not at all. Not at all. Until World War I. He
1: doesn't see the world as this mean Hobbesian societies doing survival of the fittest because Darwinism... Offends his fundamental Christianity. All right. 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 Um, uh, he, uh, I would love, I would love to see see if I can find something where he actually talks about Darwinism because it's very hard to find him even even talking about this anywhere. So the, the direct linkages between Mahan and Darwin are are hard to find.
2: Yeah, of course, it's deeply ironic that Kaiser Wilhelm II puts copies of his book in all the wardrooms of German battleships.
1: Well, right. You know, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm takes Mahan's probably most muddled, incomplete, uh, and incoherent work other than Chapter 1, which is very unified, you know, yeah, we could almost say Influence of Sea Power on History is a lot like On War, if we accept the thesis that the only complete chapter in On War is the first chapter. Right, right. All right? The, or Book One, because right. Mahan's Chapter One is like Book One, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, there, there's something to be said for that. But, yeah, you're right on that, Bill. I, I, I agree with that.
0: So let's talk of, about what people do remember him for. I think you made a good case that he's a, a geostrategist, but we, we think of him <coughs> as kind of a maritime... You know, so he's
1: a navalist. He's yeah. often regarded as the father of modern navalism. Right. But but so. he's one of the fathers of modern navalism, and the more influential fathers of modern navalism are Theodore Roosevelt, Admiral Tirpitz, right. Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, uh, Yamamoto Gumbai in Japan, and Jackie Fisher in the Royal Navy. Right. So the fa- and and Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. Um so the fathers of modern navalism are the are are often the are, are really more often than not I think the ones who are the most influential because they're the ones that actually get the fleets built are the are the policy civilian policymakers or 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 national leader policy makers like like uh, Kaiser Wilhelm Kaiser Wilhelm is it reads Mahan's book and he takes one thing away from it which is Germany can't be a global empire without a great fleet.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay? So you mentioned earlier that, uh, along the same line that there are the kind of these six principles of sea power. So, so if you mm-hmm. could elaborate on what those are for us.
1: Yeah, and, and this is where guys like Mahan and, and others are puzzled by Germany's desire because the first three principles of sea power are what we call geodeterminism, which is it matters where you are on the globe relative to two things, access to the ocean and trading routes. Yep. Okay, And in the globalized world of the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, the bulk of international trade is moving toward the sea. In fact, the bulk is at sea. Yep. The bulk of manufactured goods that are traded between nations and states and empires are in ships, in the holds of ships at sea. And the trend is toward more. Now Mahan recognizes the writing of Halford McKinder and and recognizes that. So those those and so where are you? How much coastline do you have? How many harbors do you have? Are they harbors that are that are easy to get into or hard to get into?
0: Uh, um, do you have a major land power neighbor?
1: Do you have a major land power neighbor? Or are you like the United States with Canada as sort of the 51st state to the north? and free labor in Mexico to the south, where you don't really have any continental land threats. Which the, is
0: not, uh, incidentally, also the position Britain is in.
1: Right. Brit, Britain is has a much bigger problem because she's so close to the continental powers. Now, up until the 19th century, the uh, the English Channel might as well be the Pacific Ocean, right. as long as you have a powerful navy. But... but England gets to that point where she abandons the two-power standard because now nations like France, Great Britain, and Russia are showing that Britain will never be able to have a bigger navy than the next two combined. And Britain sort of ignores the United States in all of this. So another reason she rejects the two-power standard in the early 20th century is that. The other three components of the principal conditions of sea power are what I call the human factors. And this is sort of Mahan as the naval version of Clausewitz, where he says, hey, human beings are important in the development of sea power. The, the first piece is, d- d- is sea power a big component of your national political economy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and is trading a big component? They're not necessarily by sea, but are you a nation that generates wealth by trade? And, and Mahan's... He's on the train, he's on the Adam Smith train, which is modern states generate wealth with trade, not, with, not, with, uh, not by remaining autarkic, and sort of remaining isolated,
0: they kind of modern in, internal Colbertism, where you you strictly control every aspect. Yeah, like
1: like mercantilism, which yeah. is yeah, it's all about keeping everything inside our own lifelines, to use a, a ship metaphor. And then the final component is what's the influence of government and policy on all this? This is very complicated stuff. It's not what he was asked to write. Luce wanted him to write the book that proved Jomini's principles at sea. But Mahan said, well, Jomany's principles, one, don't need to be proved, Jomany already proved them, and two, they've already been written about by a bunch of other people, mostly French, okay? Most of, most of the, the solid intellectual framework for naval tactics is not England practicism, but they don't write them down. France actually writes them down uh, with the Jeune École, with the, with, with the French writers of the French Napoleonic uh, period, even further back, as John knows, with, with in the age of Louis XIV, Colbert, Louvois, and these guys. so Or the great minister uh, for, uh, for uh, uh, um, so, so, so And Mahan's very familiar with that. Yeah, again, Mahan gets a lot of his ideas from the French. So the, so the six principal conditions of sea power aren't about how to employ a navy. They're about how to employ a nation mm-hmm. and a trading nation Okay. And so when the Tsar reads or when the Kaiser reads that, he says, "Okay, I need a navy if I'm going to be a global." But he ignores the first three principles, which are he has none of those. His access to the sea is entirely controlled by Great Britain
0: and also by Denmark.
1: And by Denmark. Earth. But even if you get through the Skagerrak into the North Sea, Great Britain still controls your access out of the North Sea through the English Channel and through the Greenland Iceland United Kingdom gap. And so, you know, the, the Great Britain is the cork in the German stopper. Right. Um, and, 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 and the Germans are not, the Germans are well established to be a modern land-centric nation-state. But because the Kaiser is the grandson of Queen Victoria of England, he, he gets it in his head that he has to have a navy. And and it, it, he almost gets it backwards. He wants a navy first and an empire second. Right. He doesn't really want a navy to protect an empire. He wants an empire to justify a navy. He's almost like a kid who wants a bunch of toys in a bathtub. Right. And and those cartoons come out at the time. Yeah.
0: So we have this. We have these kind of geostrategic ideas. Uh, there is kind of a more operational strategic element to Mahan. This kind of um, battle followed by blockade. Yeah, so so
1: so naval strategy is how you employ the fleet, right. and for Mahan, the fleet's purpose is to wage economic warfare against the enemy. Mm-hmm. And Le- Andrew Lambert, in an upcoming book called *The Neptune Factor*, states this boldly and baldly throughout his book, both in. At the beginning and at the end, as you should always, with a good argument. And so Mahan's approach to strategy is to use the fleet to wage economic warfare. So this is
0: Vigetius. Yes. Don't fight enemy armies, fight enemy fields.
1: Right, right. And so, so if the enemy has a fleet uh, and you can ignore it and attack his economy, then do that. Uh, but blockade his most famous essay or what should be his most famous essay is his essay on blockade in 1895 that the, that the British ask him to write. They say, hey, how does technology affect blockade? And Mahan basically says, I'm not sure uh, it's going to take a lot of study, which is the right thing to say, but I suspect that technology will not, not, not fundamentally alter the effectiveness of blockade as a means to wage economic warfare. Now from his
2: experiences in the Civil War, is that formative or is this just one more piece of evidence?
1: Well, again, when you read the essay, he's put so many caveats at the front (laughs) of it that he can easily sand crab backwards where somebody might say torpedo boats have made blockades impossible. And that's really what they were asking him. Have torpedo boats made blockades impossible? When the Russo-Japanese War comes along, the answer to that question is no. All right. When World War One comes along, although Mahan doesn't really get to see the answer to it, the answer to that question is no. What technology does is is it, it offers nations new ways to conduct blockades, just as air power will offer nations new ways to conduct blockades and economic warfare.
0: So we've got his kind of basic ideas. Um, You mentioned he has a strong influence on Germany. Right. um, But it doesn't really fit his formula. Let's talk a little bit about the country that does fit his formula, which is Japan. So what influence does he have on Japan?
1: His influence on Japan is profound, and that's the argument Sadao Sada makes. But it's in many ways nefarious it sort of leads Japan to take the attitude of, we'll be the Great Britain of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. The problem with Japan being the Great Britain of the Pacific is the same problem that Britain will have with being Great Britain of the Atlantic, the United States, Right. okay? And the United States and its trading power. Um, nobody's sure what's gonna happen. I mean, back when Mahan was writing, The idea was that maybe Japan would be part of this maritime liberal consortium of nations that emerges and essentially enforces a peace for everybody's benefit throughout a maritime globalized trading world. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not what happens. Uh, uh, Japan, Japan doesn't take the liberal political path, and that's a very complicated question as to why that happens, but inside Japan, the Navy is initially a liberalizing element, and the Navy leadership is a liberalizing element, but that element is slowly but surely marginalized, and so there's sort of two Mahanian factions inside the Japanese Navy. There's the liberal Mahanian element that sort of kind of believes in the influence of sea power principles, but they favor Reproachment and even alliance with the United States. And they're called the Treaty Faction. And they agree to a treaty in Washington with the United States. But there's also what I would call the Fleet Faction, which, whose idea is no, the Navy is for economic warfare. Mm-hmm. And the Navy is for power projection. The Navy is for going out and implementing a Monroe Doctrine in the Pacific for Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Japan actually makes that argument to the United States in the 30s. Hey, you know, go to your hemisphere and dominate it. That's fine with us. Just let us dominate this hemisphere. Of course, what's the gar- What's the snake in the Garden of Eden here? Well, it's China. Mm-hmm. The Je- in order for the Japan Japanese to create a Monroe Doctrine in the Far East, they have to create a client state in China. The problem is the United States also sees China as a ward, as this emerging people who are numerous and and productive and they and that will be full members in the when they finally get there when they finally arrive in the new order right and so the Japanese can't understand why the United States wants to support this decrepit failing Chinese, Republic slash warlord slash you know
0: whatever it is
1: versus them who are there to bring order and infrastructure and and their vision of the future there so so that's Mahan's influence on Japan it's through the navy and and what happens is a sort of this perverted idea of what Mahan is all about becomes the ideology that dominates the navy mm-hmm. and they and and it's 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 more uh it's more Jomini by way of Mahan to Pearl Harbor.
0: So that's a good way to characterize it. It sounds like what you're saying is if you strip away all of Mahan's political theory about liberals, rules-based international order, what you're left with is this kind of Nietzschean will to power, which right. I imagine he would have disliked. Yes,
1: but that's what you're left with. Right. You're absolutely left with this, that, that, that navies are great instruments for world domination.
0: Yeah, so that's a, that brings us to the final question. Uh, we are far detached from the world of his political musings, which you said is the majority of his writings. So what is Mahan worth today beyond just being a historical artifact? What's what's the value of his theory and his, his geostrategic ideas?
1: Um, the va- the value, again, it's just like we have to be reminded of this, you know. And the, what reminds us that... that that his ideas are a great place to start to ask policy questions and also operational questions for how to employ fleets uh, is war. You'll, you'll see a war break out in the You'll see war in the Persian Gulf in the 1980s, for example, with reflagging Kuwaiti tankers. Very, what happens there is very Mahanian. Mm-hmm. It's it, not really Corbetian. It's more Mahanian than it is Corbetian. We're going to basically say, all you ships belong to the United States, and an attack on one of these ships is an attack on the United States, and we extend our sovereignty to ships. Uh, The same thing is sort of going on in the Ukraine war right now. This idea that there's an international rules-based set, and the Ukrainians are leveraging it by using coastal waters to to funnel their trade to the rest of the world. And so they're using the liberal international rules-based order, but not the liberal international rule, rules-based orders, NATO fleets, mm-hmm. to protect their their trade, they're they're actually using NATO waters to protect their trade, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I recommended in something I wrote last month, uh, um, and and I'm, I was very pleased to see them implement it, even though I don't know uh, they probably had the idea before me. So I think I think Mahan provides a framework to think about. Both the big things and the little, and the and and the and, and the operational level things. You know, what are fleets for? Mm-hmm. Mahan was always asking it, What is what are fleets for? He's asked to come up with a war plan to defend the United States from somebody—Great Britain, Germany, probably at the time that they were thinking more Great Britain. Mahan does not come up with a quote-unquote Mahanian solution to the problem. Uh, he doesn't say uh, the only solution to this problem is to go out and fight a big battle. Instead, he says, well, we need to defend our coasts and we need to defend our trade. And this is how we'll deploy our very small and inadequate fleet in order to do that. Mm -hmm. All right. And so what he comes up with, and and there's some scholarship on this, although I don't know, I've seen it at some conferences that I've attended that looks at the war plans Mohan wrote in 1894, 1895 during the Venezuelan crisis of those years, which were, or not the Venezuelan crisis, but the Venezuela-British-Guiana crisis. Um, and, and his, it's not seek battle. It's it's here's how we can make our Navy most useful. And it's a fleet and being strategy. It's more Corbett than Mahan. Yeah. But the question is, what do we do with the fleet we have right now? What do we do with the policies that we have in hand right now Vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis maritime trade. Yeah. And so, so Mahan is still great as a starting point to ask those questions and then to go back to his day and say, well, how did he propose we answer those questions? Mm-hmm. And in most cases, his, 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 his answers were correct. In 1906, after 10 years of not publishing with the Naval Institute, the Naval Institute says, hey, could you write uh, an article about the Battle of the Tsushima Strait? And, and it's an interesting article because essentially Mahan says sea battles of the future, uh, what, what the Russo-Japanese War teaches us is that it's probably going to be more like a melee than a long-range fight. Well, what was, at the time, that was not how admirals were saying. They were saying this is going to be a long-range gunnery fight. It's not going to be a melee, all right? Um, it's going to be Jutland, okay, or Jutlands. It's not going to be these melees. But Mahan is actually more right about the future than Sims and, and the long-range gunnery club. It has actually be more about melees, about submarines mixing it up with convoys and ASW, about, about airplanes flying back and forth in air battle melees. And, and so the other thing that he writes about is political economy. He says, you know, by building sort of a single type of ship and betting on that, One, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. You're getting away from the idea of a balanced fleet. And so he actually says it it makes no sense to build modern warships uh, that are going to make what you have obsolete because you've just spent all this money on these other ships. So he's one of the first people to really criticize the Dreadnought. He is ridiculed for criticizing Dreadnought. And then, of course, you know, uh, 15 years after he writes that article in which he says dreadnoughts are not the wave of the future, battleships are are are, are uh, prevented. They sign a treaty where no new battleships will be built. Right. And guys like Billy Mitchell saying battleships are obsolete. They're not the they're not the wave of the future. Okay, for, for naval warfare. Airplanes are the wave of the future for naval warfare.
2: So an interesting mix of an idealist, a futurist slash prophet, and yeah, a realist.
1: That's the part of Mahan I don't think that's well understood is Mahan as a futurist. He's actually got a pretty good record. He says maybe uh, bulk uh, goods and commodities will be cheap enough on railroads to, to ameliorate our reliance on, on maritime trade but I think we should wait and see, all right? So he does give, and, and so he does recognize that Alfred McKinder's theories about that maybe railroads are going to create that great internal lines of, of, of defense that will lead to the Eurasian heartland being sort of, of course, the problem with the heartland theory is who's going to dominate the heartland? Yeah. And, you know, the last time anybody dominated the heartland, it was Genghis Khan. And he right. didn't have the political structures to keep it all together. Or railroads. Or
0: railroads. To keep I also, I think an interesting point to be made is completely different podcast, but I think you can do Mahan in space as well.
1: Oh, and he has been done. There's been some really excellent articles written about applying Mahanian. Uh, uh, there is, there's an article by an Air Force guy that says, let's take Mahan's six principal conditions and see if we can apply those to space. Mm-hmm. And he actually does a pretty good job yeah. uh, of, of kind of translating. So that's where Mahan is useful. He provides a template to sort of examine modern problems. He does not provide those solutions to modern problems.
0: Right. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, Dr. Kuhn. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Bill. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.